Good to be here with y'all this morning. Really had a great time uh, with the little time that I had with you, Pastor, and I just see why this place is like it is because of the little time I had with him, and, and uh, it's just good to be here in Texas. And uh, I, I want to start with this. I need someone <clears throat> uh, to tell me when 30 minutes comes <laughs> so, I, so I can land the plane. So who would take responsibility of that? What about you? All right, now you got to flag me now. You just can't, you can't do like this. Okay, you got to say, hey, stop, or something like that, okay? And uh, so, we can, so we can land this plane. Uh, and, and Pastor, thank you for trusting us here in your pulpit. And I want you to do some people. This is my lovely brown sugar for 35 years, uh, Miss Linda. Yeah, uh, just a wonderful wife. And when she walks by me, she still puts a crook in my neck when I have to look at her going through now. That's right. Uh, I met her in a dance class. I was an athlete at Memphis State University, and I was hurt. So, you know, athletes, we have to have that one class that you make an A in to bring them Ds up because you're traveling all the time. And I took his dance class, and she sashayed through there, and I said, Lord, I'm saved, but I ain't blind. (laughs) And uh, so so I got them digits and washed it for two years and put a ring on it and took it to the house. Amen? (laughs) That's right. That's right. And uh, then we also have uh, uh, Wayne Mitchell here, <clears throat> Brother Wayne Mitchell uh, from Oak Cliff, Oak Cliff Bible Church. He was Pastor Tony Evans' first youth minister back when they first got started, way back in the day. And, uh, and then we got Pastor Rick Barnes from Gates Community Church. And uh, yeah, we all met at that camp, Kids Across America Camp. And I hope you'll consider maybe one day bring some kids there. It's a wonderful camp, urban camp. Jesus is glorified. Uh, it's centered around kids. We do water skiing. Well, not water skiing. We do tubing. Tubing and treetops, rope course, and just Christ is glorified at that place big time. So I hope you consider it, bringing some kids there one day. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to talk about chosen for the greatest this morning, chosen for the greatest. And we're going to talk about the theme of disciple-making. And I think I want to come to one of them Thrive groups because it seems like a common thread through them all is food and fellowship. Uh, yeah, man. Can't go wrong with food and fellowship. Okay. Matthew 4, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. All right. And it says, walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father's father, and followed him. Now, I got to give you a little background, and we got to create a runway to get the backdrop, to get the context, to really understand what Jesus is saying and what he's doing here. You see, context gives words the meaning, all right? If I say, ring the bell, well, at Kids Across America, when a person rings the bell, that means they've come to Christ, and we celebrate. Camp just stops, and everybody everywhere celebrates their turn and their decision to follow Christ. In a community in the rural 
Central America or South America, when the bell rings, it means it's time for prayer or everybody gather because we got a big announcement we got to make. Ringing the bell. If you're a Navy SEAL and going through Navy SEAL training, you ring the bell, it means you gave up. You quit. All ringing the bell, three different contexts, three different meanings. So context gives words their meaning. So we got to build some context here. Now, the question I want to ask you is, why were they fishing? And you can say, yes, they were generation, generational fishermen. Uh, their families fished. Their village fish. Five of these disciples who followed Jesus were from the village of Bethsaida. And Bethsaida means Fishington. It was a fishing village. But why were these guys back fishing? Well, the backdrop will tell us. They were born in an area called Galilee. And in Galilee, they were born in a specific area called the Triangle. And in the Triangle, you had three primary cities. You had Corzan, which was inland. If you had a laid down sideways triangle, you had Corzan, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. They were in this triangle. And in this triangle is where the rabbis brought their Talmud, that's the Old Testament word for disciple, they brought their Talmud to debate their yoke. The yoke was the doctrinal line of a rabbi. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and what? No, that's verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and what? Learn of me. So a yoke was the doctrinal line of a rabbi. So rabbis brought their disciples, their Talmud, to this triangle, and they debated and discussed their yoke. In other words, what doctrinal line they followed. The community could come out and listen to these rabbis and their students debate and talk about the scripture. Everybody in Galilee went to school. But in Jerusalem, Judea, and those places, you had people who were illiterate and some could not even read. But every student in Galilee went to school, and they had a superb school system. A kid would go to school, and the first level of school would be called Bet Safer. Bet means house. Safer means book. It was the house of the book. And from 5 to 11-year-old, they would memorize God's word. And many of them, because of Deuteronomy and what they told them to do in the home, already knew the book of Moses and had memorized the first five books of the Bible by the time they got to school. Isn't that amazing? Now, in King James, in Acts, it calls these guys ignorant and unlearned men. Well, ignorant and unlearned can't mean to them what it means to us. Because if it means what it means to us, I got to come up to be ignorant. You feel me? These guys knew the book. So they'd memorize it. And then the rabbis would come around and put honey on the tablet. And when it was time to recite the word and memorize the word, they would take and say, put that honey on the tongue and taste and see that the Lord is. So their teaching was tangible. I was as abstract. If I said define God in the Western Hemisphere, we would say he is omnipresent. He is omnipotent. He's, 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 he's faithful. Well, those are true, but they're abstract. And I would ask you, touch those things. You can't touch them. But the way they would describe God is he is a shelter. Can you, can you imagine a shelter? 
We in one. Can you touch it? They would say, he is my rock. Can you see a rock? Can you touch it? Is it tangible? Yes. They would, he is a bomb, B-A-L-M in Gilead. When you cut yourself and you put the right ointment on there, can't you feel it begin to heal? So they describe God in a tangible way. And I'm wondering, is that one reason we here in the West think God is so far away, so untouchable, so unapproachable, because he's always described in abstract ways instead of up close, personable, and tangible? You feeling me? So that's the first level of school. The next level would be Bet Talmud. That's book. I mean, the house bet of learning, Talmud learning. So they would move to the next level. They would begin to memorize the books of the prophets and, and the books of writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs. And the young ladies would be worship leaders, so they would memorize Psalms and Proverbs to lead worship. And this would be ages of 11 or 12 to 14. At this age, young ladies would be coming on their ladies' way, and y'all know what I'm talking about. And they would be getting ready to go home and wait for a husband and a parade to come down the road to see. And they run to the window and say, is that my man coming for me? Is that my man coming for me? You see? And at this age, some of the young men would begin to go to the family trade. But then the next level of schooling, Bet Midrash, house of study. This would be... 15 years old and up, and they were getting deeper and deeper into the word, and they would walk up to a rabbi and say, Rabbi, may I follow you? If the rabbi said, yes, you may follow me, they would follow that rabbi from age 15 to age 30, and they would follow that rabbi 24-7 for 15 years because their goal was not just to know the knowledge of the rabbi, it was to be exactly as the rabbi was. You see, theirs was a knowledge to gain to do. Ours is a knowledge to gain to know. And then in the West, we don't never know enough. We think we never know enough. And I guarantee you, most of you, if not all of you in this room right now, have enough knowledge that you've learned from this pastor and your groups that you could go to a third world country and teach most leaders three months without having to study another lesson. But we sit here on the West and we never know enough. Oh, I don't know enough. I don't have enough knowledge. If America and the West would just obey what God told him to do this morning... you will see a different country and a different world tomorrow. So if we're not going to obey what God told us to do this morning and what he told us to do yesterday, what do you need with another sermon, a Bible study, or a quiet time to add more disobedience to answer to God for? (laughs) Obey what he's already told you. Theirs was a knowledge to do. Ours is just a knowledge to know, and we never know enough. Move out on what you know. If a person just eats and eats and eats and never exercises, what happens to them? They get big. They get unhealthy. So eat and then exercise. And then your body burns it up and you want to do what again? Eat again because it's burned up and it's okay. 
So why should God pour more in the funnel when you're not conduiting it out? You see, if I had a pipe running to the back of this room into a drain and I pour oil in it, is the destination of the oil the pipe? No, it's the drain. But then when I run my finger in that pipe, what's on it? Oil. So as you let it flow through you to somewhere else, what you need is going to rub off on you. But you keep being a conduit and letting God flow it through you and watch what happens in your life. Now, so they would follow that rabbi. I mean, the rabbi could be 80 years old, and he got a dip. He's walking through, got a bad hip, walking with a dip. He could have 12 CrossFit diesel disciples. <laughs> they would be behind him. Guess how they come through? Just like him dipping. Because <laughs> the goal is not just to know his knowledge, it's to what? Be just like him. And after 15 years, they complete the process, then they could take on disciples for themselves. How old is Jesus right now when he's coming through to get these guys? He's age 30. He followed the system of his day. Now, if, a, if, if they approach the rabbi and they say, may I follow you? And the rabbi says, no, you don't have the chutzpah. You don't have the, 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 the intestinal fortitude, what it takes to follow me. Go be a godly farmer, stone cutter. Go be a, folly, a godly wine press operator. Press some olives. Go be a godly fisherman. But you don't have what it takes to follow me. They'll be rejected. What are these guys doing right here? So what did that tell you happened to them in their culture and their society? They got rejected. They didn't have what it took to follow the religious leaders of their day in their culture. They were rejects. But then here comes Jesus, the rabbi with what's called shmika. Shmika is the word used when Jesus came through, they says, he don't teach as our scribes and Pharisees. He teaches as one with authority. That's the word shmika. He was a shmika rabbi. A shmika rabbi could make interpretations of the word. So when you read your Bible and Jesus says, you have heard your teachers say, but I say. Have you read that? Yeah. Go with what, when he says, I say, he's giving you the right interpretation of that verse. Yeah. He's doing shmika. Yeah. He's doing shmika. All right? But I say. And that is the background of the text. He did not come to abolish the law, but came to, to give the right interpretation. Okay? All right? So here comes the rabbi with Shmika. At 12 years old, he'd been in the temple, and these religious leaders asking him questions. He's answering their questions with a question, and they're impressed that this young man can do this. Now, he'd been jamming them up since he was 12. These other disciples, they've seen him, and they've seen him uh, be confronted by them, and they ask him a question. He asks him a question back, give them the answer, and give the answer in their question, and they just have to walk away. They've seen this. Now here they've rejected you, but here comes the one with Shmika. Been jamming them up. And he comes and says to you, follow me. And when a rabbi says follow me, in their culture it means you have what it takes to be exactly like me. So then it says what they do. Immediately they left the boats to follow the net and followed him. 
So they're saying, man, he's saying follow him and I can be like him. So that means I'm going to get what it takes. I'll make them walk away again from me too. The ones that said I wasn't good enough for them. Do you see that? So he walks. And then this is the context background of John 15, 16. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Now, that word chosen is a middle voice verb in the Greek text. Active voice, I throw the ball. Passive voice, I'm just walking around and the ball hits me. Middle voice incorporates the two. It's like the guy who bought a new boomerang and knocked himself out throwing the old one away. <laughs> Got a new boomerang. He's walking. He says, I don't need this old one. Threw it. Turn around. What that boomerang do? <laughs> Come back and hit him in the head, right? That's the middle voice verb. God says, I came and got you. And see, that's the truth for any of us because when we were born after John, after, after Genesis 3, 6, when he did eat, Eve ate, she sinned, disobeyed. But when Adam ate, sin came to all mankind. Why? Because all the human race was in his loins. And when he ate of the fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat, it was as if you and I were eating it there with him. And at that point, everybody born at that point was born in a dead, depraved, sinful nature. And we were born, walked away from God. And guess what? God says, I want that one. And he came and did what? He came and got us. He says, I chose you. You didn't choose me because you were steady walking away from me. And if I didn't design circumstances around your life to make him point you back to me, you'd still be walking away. So God says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And guess what? He chose us for himself. And his choice of us, he's saying, I chose you for myself, for my family, for relationship. I brought you in my bait off, the father's house. I chose you, and I'm going to take the results of my choice for you, whether good or bad, the way you operate in the world. Now, is that a good God? Is that grace or what? I'm going to take the results of your lifestyle, the way you operate in the world, whether that results is good or bad. As a matter of fact, what determines the way people think about God is the way we live before them. Ephesians 2 and 10 says we are his workmanship. The word workmanship is the word poema. It's the word poem. The poem is a nature, character, intent, the heart, the makeup of the writer placed on paper. We read the paper and determine what the writer is like. So in English literature, we read the poem and we say, the teachers say, what is the writer like? We say, oh, alcoholic, uh, melancholy, you know, uh, depressed, happy. He's secure, confident, because we read the paper and determine what the writer is like. Y'all follow me? God says we are his poems. And he says, I'm going to let a world that knows absolutely nothing about me read your life and determine what I, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is like. So you better not never let nobody tell you you ain't nobody, that you are worthless and you don't count because the king of king and lord of lords says, I'm going to take the results of your life and let them think that about me. So I don't have to have Oprah, Steve Harvey, the best-selling author tell me that I'm somebody. When I read that, I know I'm somebody in God's economy and I count. 
So when they read your life and mine, what do they think about him? Is he, is he faithful or unfaithful? Is he giving or stingy? Is he loving all people or is he prejudiced? What do they think about God when they read your life? People always say, oh, I love everybody. Well, let me come to your house and see. Let me see what kind of pictures on the wall. Let me see your checkbook. I can tell you whether you know of all people or not. Just those two things. Whose feet been under your table? Yeah. All right? So now let's look at what he chose him for. He chose him for the greatest perception. Verse 18 and 22, it says, He walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw. He saw two brothers. He saw the other two brothers. He's talking about the kind of sight he looked at them with. And, and we don't have a lot of time to walk through this, but we'll give one example. John 1:42. It says, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Who did he bring to Jesus? Simon. Very important. Let the Bible speak for itself. Don't be like most preachers and impose on it what ain't there. Let it speak for itself. Said he brought Simon to Jesus. And it says Jesus looked at him. And he says, you are Simon, but you shall become Peter, Cephas, a rock. Okay? The key word is looked at him. That's the word emblepo. E-M-B-L-E-P-O. Blepo is the word for a casual look, a casual gaze. I look at this sister here. I see she got a, a do a rag tied up real good right there. She got her stuff on looking, you know, devonair and, 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 and deaverish. And so I just look, and then I look away. You see, a casual look, just a quick look, casual look. That's blepo. And brothers, that's how we ought to look at women and our wives. Just God made a beautiful creation. God made a beautiful thing. And, and didn't what? Blepo. Look away. Get away. <laughs> Don't get in trouble. Don't stay there too long. You get in trouble. And ladies, you the same way. I know you look at them CrossFit diesel dudes and go, man, <laughs> look at the muscles on that guy. And if you see somebody looking too long, just walk up and say, Blepo. Blepo, bruh. Blepo. So Blepo is a casual look. Casual look. All right? EM means into and through. So Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus emblepoed him. He looked through him and to him and to his potential future, and he saw Peter. The distance between Simon and Peter, Simon is like sand you got on the ocean. It's, it's shifty. It's unstable. But then along the way with that sand, you add a little ingredients, a little concrete mix, a little water. What does it do? Sets up like a rock. So the distance between Simon and Peter, Jesus added into him what he needed to set him up like a rock. But also, you got that machine, if anybody knows concrete, right? Tell me if I'm wrong. You got that machine you walk around with, and it brings that water and that impurities up out of it, so it'll set up. So the distance between Simon and Peter, he added what he needed to add into him to make him set up like a rock. But he took out of him what would keep him from setting up like a rock. You see? Guess how he looked at you and I when we came to him? He emblepoed us. What'd he do to us? Come on, church. What'd he do to us? I thought this place was live and thrive. Come on. What'd he do to him? He emblepoed us. So when you go to the mirror, stop having these sad, whiny baby conversations with yourself. 
about what you not, what you can't do, because guess what? He embleppled you. And what did he see in Simon Peter? He saw a world changer. So guess what he sees in you? Say it. You are what? He sees more in us than we see in ourselves. He sees you as valuable. What if you had an interview for a big job and your breath was just stinking with garlic and onions <laughs> and, 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 and the sleep the night before? That's, that's rough, ain't it? That's three rough things. You got all that leaking out over here from the night before. This thing worth about five cents. All right, about five cents. But if you was going to an interview like that, would you give me $5 for it? Yeah, you better believe it. At least you don't want the job. $5 for a job? Yeah, you'll give me $5. But what if Michael Jordan walked in and said, I'll give you $5 million for it? Guess what? This thing is now worth $5 million. I don't care what you think about it, and inherently we know it's not worth that much and didn't take that much to make it. But what determines the value of this is what the purchaser is willing to pay. The purchaser determines the value. When I travel, I've been outside the U.S. 138 times, traveling overseas, training pastors and leaders, been in about 200 countries. She's been with me on 69 of those, so don't let her fool you with all them high heels and stuff. She gangster. <laughs> yeah, sleep anywhere, eat anything, bathe anywhere, just she gangster. And so, so we go to these museums, and I see these paintings on the wall. And I don't want to offend any artists in here, but I look at them and things, and I said, I see a $12 million price tag on this thing. I said, this is worth $12 million? Curator goes, yes, this. It probably took 50 cents worth of paint to paint it back in its day, but it's $12 million painting. Look like my three-year-old painted it. My three-year-old grandbaby, look like she painted it. Then I asked him, can I paint five of them put up there? Be worth $12 million? Now, it don't matter what I think about it. The purchaser determined the value. Whom did God pay for you and I? Who? Who did he pay for you and I? His son. So God is saying to each one of us, we are worth as much to him as his only begotten son. So you want to know what God thinks about you? Read what he thinks about his son. Now, see, it'd be hard for us to catch up with that. But you get in the book and look at it for yourself or just keep living a defeated life. Let the enemy come in and keep defeating you because you don't know your identity in Christ. You can keep living up and down. And then when somebody starts walking in their confidence in Christ and begins to elevate in their confidence in Christ, those that are not are exposed, and they begin to say, oh, that person's prideful. That person's arrogant. No, they're just confident and chasing after Christ. So you stop beating them folks down, and you get yourself in the lane and start running in that confidence. Okay? So what else do you see? John 17, 20, he says, in the, in the high priestly prayer of our Lord, he says, I'm not only praying for you, you, you immediate disciples right here. He says, I'm praying through them to those who will believe in me through your word. So who did he pray for 2,000 years ago right there with his disciples in front of him? He prayed for you and I. So if he prayed through them to you and I, guess what? He also prayed through you and I to those who will believe in him through our word. So he, we were in his prayer over 2,000 years ago. He prayed through us to the future. 
That's what he saw in these disciples. A bunch of teenagers, rejects, prejudice. These guys were prejudiced. How do we know that? Because they were Jewish. They especially didn't like Samaritans and pretty much didn't like any Gentiles. So Jesus started his earthly ministry with a bunch of teenage prejudiced rejects. That ought to make us feel good in here. We all been in one of them categories, if not all three of them. Come on, talk to me. But did he let them stay that way? How do we know? Any Jewish people in here? Because if he had stayed that way, then they would have only went for the Jewish people. I'm not Jewish. You Jewish? What about you? No. I'm proof that they didn't stay that way. So none of those would be an excuse that we can put before God of why we didn't bring and help people get to his kingdom. You see, I grew up 45 minutes from where they started Ku Klux Klan. I know what all the oppression is at top level. I know what all it is. I know going through difficulty. I know what run-ins with the police and all that stuff is. But I had nothing to do with it. Then when I came to Christ, well, first God gave me two roommates. He gave me a Yankee white roommate, and he gave me a Jewish roommate. The two people that I was taught, not by my parents, but by my circles, uh, not to trust. And God gave me roommates. I'd go to their house. Their parents would treat me just like I was their own son. Go to the Jewish guy's house, wear a little hat, eat the kosher. Go to the Yankee, Yankee roommate's house. They treat me just like I was their own kid. Then I begin to say, God, I can't loop everybody in the same category. I got to look at people individually. Because these folks don't act like them folks I know back at home. And then God spoke. He says, you're going to be a great commission Christian. You're going to be a lordship Christian. He says, then your responsibility is the grand wizard of the KKK son just as much as the responsibility of sharing the gospel with your own son in your own home. I said, all right, Lord, we'll get at this. He saw the world through them. Next thing, chosen for the greatest position to follow me. You follow him to be like him. Now, what time? You ain't caught up, are you? What, what, what are we looking like? Go ahead All right. I, I, I get my wife to do it. She get caught up, Pastor. And next thing you know, I'm 20 minutes over. Okay, thank you. All right. So chosen for the greatest position, to follow. So when a rabbi says, follow me, what that rabbi saying? Come on. You can be like me. So the purpose of following is to become like. In John 3.22, it says Jesus took his disciples into the Judean wilderness, and they spent time together. King James says they tarried together. Other translations said they remained together, and they baptized. All right? So they were doing ministry together because baptizing was going on. But the key is they were together, spent time, remained, tarried. The word is diatribo. When you're talking about people groups, it's diatribe. But we talk about relationship is diatribo, D-I-A-T-R-I-B-O, diatribo. Tribo means to rub, all right? 
Can I rub pastor from here? Huh? What do I have to do? Come on, pastor. What do I have to do to rub pastor? I got to be close. Okay? And dia means through and into. So he took them aside and kept them with them to rub his character through them and into them. So disciple-making, if it doesn't have a heavy with-me aspect, it's not biblical disciple-making. It's not disciple-making after the model of Jesus. So, yes, classes, okay, good. But you can't really get to know me in a class. The only way you can know me is you flowing with me. I got guys will drive across town in Memphis to get in the car, drive with me 20 minutes and drive me to Walmart, just spend time with me, hang with me. We get back to my house, they get in their car and go back home just to get with me time. Because being with me, they can become what? Like me. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, mimic or follow me as I follow Christ. Did he say follow Christ? No. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And what he's saying is, if you want to know what it is to be like Christ, if you know what it is to be godly, if you want to know what it is to study the word, if you want to know what it is to live victorious in Christ, follow me and I will show you how. But here's what we say in the West. Follow me as I follow Christ and only then. That ain't Bible. And then somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I want to be like you. Here's what we say in our arrogance. Don't be like me, be like Come on. Don't, we all said it. Don't be like me. Be like what? What have we said about myself? Now, who are we supposed to be like? So if I tell them, don't be like me, be like Christ, what have I said about me? I'm not like Christ. So where are you going to tell them to find me? Walmart Tuesday? 530? No, that person's saying, I see a Christ in you that I want to follow. But we think we got to be perfect for somebody to follow after us. There's not even a concept in the Hebrew uh, uh, deal of anything perfect. Was Paul perfect? No. But he still said, follow me and I will show you how to follow Christ. So when are we in the body of Christ are going to get bold enough and going to get biblical enough to say, young man, young lady, I see you struggling. If you want to know how to get over those struggles, walk in victory. Follow me, come with me, and I'll show you how. So if you got somebody trailing you, if you got somebody trailing you who's going to be like you, you surely had better be becoming like who? So the greatest accountability you have to your own growth is somebody following you to become like you. You better be growing to become like Christ. And when people come to me, Brother Soup, Pastor Soup, uh, my life is struggling. I'm up and down. My first question to them is, do you have a disciple? No? Well, that's your struggle. There's no accountability outside of you, bigger than you, to keep you pointed and moving toward Christ in your growth. So open your life up. Provide opportunity. Live authentic. Stop being plastic. Some of y'all this morning was in the car, didn't talk all the way coming here. I know y'all couples. Because I got a wife, too. <laughs> Have we ever done that? Come on, somebody testify. Have we ever done that, couples? Drive all the way to church, ain't get rocks in our jaws, ain't said nothing, don't even look at over each other. Look like both people trying to clam out both doors in the car. <laughs> and then get out, put that smile on, walk up, the greeter, how you doing? Blessed and highly flavored. <laughs> but that's artificial flavor. 
Then we come in. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Praise. Shake hands. Hey, brother, sister, how you doing? Get back in the car. Same demeanor. <laughs> Why in America is the most plastic time 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? That should be the place where we can be the most authentic. We are family. We brothers and sisters in Christ. It ought to be a place where I come and say, Pastor or brother, what's your name? Brother Robert, I'm struggling, man. I'm having these difficulties. And we can pray and talk through it right here. But we don't do that. We'll hold on to it, hold on to it. And then something will happen. We'll fall into some kind of sin. And now we're trying to make up. Now we're trying to repair it when we could have got ahead of it, and we got to form Vegas. The body of Christ got to form Vegas to where I can come and download, and what's what's said in Vegas, what? We ain't got Vegases in our life, and that's where we go mess up and get out there and mess up. You got to have a Vegas. Men, you need a Vegas group. Ladies, you need a Vegas group. You feel me? Yeah, and we got to model that. We got to model that. Yes. All right? What you, you can't be what you don't see. You cannot become what you do not behold. But you will be what you see, and you will become what you behold. So find someone who's walking victoriously in Christ and ask them, may I pursue you and follow you to see how you're walking in victory? If they say, no, don't stop. Go to somebody else. Because the future is depending on this. It's not just about you. And if you're a man and you're modeling passive Christianity, that's the product you're going to have. And ain't nothing worse than a passive Christian man. And it's a shame if a man has to bring his wife to another man for her to get her spiritual growth. And if you can't do it right now, you get somebody to disciple you to where you become your spiritual leader in your home. Got a young man come to me, big, tall young man. He was young, raw in the faith. Wife knew a lot more. But we got in there, we got digging and stuff. Now this young man can lead his wife. And you ladies, some of you ladies, let him lead. Let him lead. You humble yourself and let him lead. And don't go home talking more about the preacher than you do your husband. (laughs) Yeah, I tell ladies, hey, don't go home talking to your husband about me. You tell him about the word. You tell them about what you're learning in the Word and how you're growing in the Word. Don't go home talking about another man more than you talk about your husband. I'm talking to you now. Yeah. 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 Ladies, if you model rebelliousness to your husband, and that's what young ladies see, that's going to be your product. And see, ladies, when somebody says the word submit, you spit. <laughs> you put on the glove. You like this. What? What? Submit what? (laughs) Do you not know that word has a military background? 
The word submit comes from a military background, biblically, all through the Bible. So the strength of a country is determined by its military. The strength of the home is determined by you, ladies, not us. Submission is one of the strongest words in the Bible. Strongest words in the Bible. Study your Bible. Don't hear, listen to the popular person. Some of them popular books out there are people writing of their hurt and pain, and they're trying to bring you in on it, and they, their pain, and they, they went into a rebellious cycle. Get in the Word. She's not living with your husband. You are. And that author jacking up your house. Y'all feel me? Get in the word. Y'all work it out. (coughs) Chosen to follow the greatest person. John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. That word Dwelt is the word tabernacled. So God took on human flesh and tabernacled and walked among us. What's a tabernacle? Tabernacle was a tent set up in the middle of the camp of Israel. They set out like spokes around it. And God's presence was recognized in the tabernacle. God's presence. They would see it at night by fire and the day by cloud. When God moved, the people moved. When people moved, God moved. So the presence of God was recognized, and was in the tabernacle. Where's the presence of God today? Where is it today? Make it personal. Where is it? It's in me. If you say, so what does that make you? That makes you God's tabernacle. So you're tabernacling the presence of God everywhere you go. You're carrying the person of Christ with you everywhere you go. And there are things he want to do out of you. And here's what we say and what I've heard before. You can't hinder God's work. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Have you ever been somewhere and God impressed on you, I want to say something to that person in that line in front of you. I want to say something to him. And, man, you sweating bullets. Like, hear him get through here so I can get out of here so I ain't got to say it. You been there, right? We all been there. God said, I want to say something. you like, oh, man, let me get out of here. Sweating BBs. And then you leave and don't say nothing. Was it clear God wanted to work and say something to that person? Did we do it? Did we hinder his work? Yes. Yes. You see, if God wanted to, he could split this building open, speak in here. There'd be wet spots all over the floor. (laughs) He'd be done scared us to death, right? (laughs) But he don't do it that way. He chose to use you and I to co-labor, to co-mission, to partner with him that a world might know him. What a privilege that you get to work for the king of kings and lord of lords. If the president asks us to work for him like that, how will we handle that job? We look at it as a privilege, right? We'd represent well. Because we represent our country, we represent everything. Why don't we look at it the same way in representing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's move on. 
How much time were we looking at? Huh? Land, time to land it. All right, let's land this plane. Let's, let's, let's move on down. Let's land this plane. All right? Last thing, chosen for the greatest purpose. He says, I will make you fishers of men. The greatest purpose we can have on this earth is to fish for men. Fish for men. To see people come to Christ. And God's great commission is his strategy for impacting the entire globe. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, I'm going to leave you something right here, and you go wrestle with it yourself. I used to teach, go as a command. But then my disciple, who I'd been with for over 30 years, 29,000 up close and personal, took the Greek text, and he showed me that go is not the imperative mood verb. The imperative mood verb in the Great Commission is to make disciples. And I was very upset at the teachers I had been with who really didn't research it, and they were telling me, and I was just trusting them and repeating that go is the command. But in the Greek text, go is not the command. Go is an aorist passive participle. Aorist means no limits, no boundaries, and it means point action is happening right now. He moved go so far away from command, he made it passive. And it's a participle. Participle tell you how to do something. So in short, it's like this. What's your name? If I walked around and said, Miss Sally, breathe, 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 Miss Sally. I see at Walmart, Miss Sally, are you breathing? What would y'all think about that? Like, he's crazy. Did you wake up this morning and say, I think I'll breathe all day today? Did anybody lay down last night and say, I think I'll breathe all through the night? Why not? Because breathing is what? Automatic. That's right. It's passive. It's automatic. So God is telling us, you're going, if you're not dead, if you're not sitting in one place and you're not sleeping, you are always in the process of doing what? Going. So he says, as you are going, while you are going, since you are going, and after you have looked back over your going, Make sure you fulfill my command, which is to make disciples. And it's the strongest Greek verb in your New Testament, mathetusite, and it means turn someone into something. So it means turn someone into multiplies. The root word is math, where we get mathematics and multiplication. He said, turn everybody at your fingertips and those who will follow you into multipliers, multiplying my gospel where? All nations, all ta'ethne across the globe. And some will say, well, I don't have a passport. I can't go across the globe. Well, I guarantee you, the globe is in your town right now. They're at Walmart every day. They're at the service station. They're at the Whataburger. They're here every day. But see, our country just paints our paradigm black and white. Politics paints our paradigm black and white. Theocracy has to override our democracy. My walk with Christ has to override anything anybody else is saying about me not reaching all nations if I'm going to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, and if I'm going to be obedient to Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, my time is gone. Come on, Pastor. That's the only way I know how to close it down. Appreciate y'all.